Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, and welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Piotr Kosicki. I'm professor of history at the University of Maryland in College Park. I'm very pleased today to welcome Dr. Johann Lingelbach to the program. Uh, Dr. Johann Lingelbach is a postdoctoral research fellow in African history at the University of Bayreuth in Germany, working in the project Africa in the Global History of Refugee Camps, 1940s, 1950s, within the university's Africa Multiple Reconfiguring African Studies Cluster of Excellence. His research interests include the modern history of East Africa, colonialism, forced migration, and on a general level, the manifold historical entanglements of people, things, and ideas created through human mobility around the globe. He obtained his doctorate at the African Studies Institute of the University of Leipzig. And we will be discussing today his book that appeared in 2020 with Berghahn Books, entitled On the Edges of Whiteness, Polish Refugees in British Colonial Africa During and After the Second World War. Uh, Dr. Lingelbach, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you, Piotr. Thank you so much for inviting me here and for this nice introduction. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. I like the fact that you work at the crossing of so many different uh, fields, and I think that may frame my first question to you, which is, uh, it's a rarity for me to host on New Books in Eastern European Studies a trained Africanist. How did you as an Africanist come to write a book about Eastern Europeans? Actually, quite quite by accident. It was um, in the course of my master's thesis. I did it on, on in Dar es Salaam, on the colonial history of the town of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. And then I was um, interviewing old people in town just to ask them, okay, how was it back then? People who remembered the late colonial times. So asking where did who who did live where in town so and then one old man just said like yeah and then there were some polish refugees there and i was like okay now i think it couldn't be right and then he said like no 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 they were from poland that was during the war they they fled there i thought like okay okay no one ever heard about this and then I asked more people and started to do some little research. And then I, I was just like fascinated by the story. And I thought there was nothing written on it. Actually, there, there's quite some literature, but not so much. And yeah, that's, that picked my interest. And then I just followed up on this. And then I started learning Polish. And yeah, because before that, I had no idea about Polish history. I mean, I know some German history as I'm from Germany. But yeah. The rest was more, more, my interest was more from the colonial history side, East African history. Well, so you actually bring multiple axes into uh, frame the story at the very start of the book. I think you describe them as exile, 
immigration and uh, colonial histories. And I, I think you do a beautiful job, actually, of really entangling those different frameworks. I'm curious, uh, just to, to sort of help the readers who aren't familiar, or rather the listeners who aren't familiar yet with your book, um, how, do, how do colonial history and exile history come together in your research? Mm. I mean, yeah, I do this a bit in, in, in reviewing the literature that's there already on this. So there's, there's I guess, most of the re- literature is from Polish exile history, like people from Poland writing about Polish refugees because they were from Poland. Then there are other works of people from Canada, Australia, who, who trace the, the groups of, of people who came to this history and then uh, to, to these countries. And then... Um, then there are some some who write on on colonial history, but not so much yet. Um, who write about the history of the host countries of in, in Tanzanian history, Ugandan history, Kenyan history, and so on. So, and I think it it, it all comes together there because it's it's on the on the same side same moment. It's 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 history of people in exile from Poland. Um, but at the same time, it 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 it, it something happens in the colonies um, when this large group of people comes in there of of European refugees, and then they have to somehow be brought into this colonial society. Yeah. Well, so to to help situate our audience, we're talking about, if I get the numbers right from your book, uh, slightly over nineteen thousand refugees, uh, of whom I understand about. Two thirds eventually would settle in the United Kingdom, but over the span of five to eight years, I guess it depends exactly which were which how for whom we're counting and where are distributed across Eastern and Central Africa. Although South Africa also uh, plays a role in your story, and the scale is very different depending which spaces we're talking about. And I think, uh, obviously, for Africanists, there's going to be a lot to engage here also about why Tanganyika or Uganda ended up absorbing so many more refugees than the Rhodesias or especially compared to Kenya or South Africa. Uh, but let's say for, a, for an inter, a cross-field audience, Oh, what would you say is maybe the most important starting point to tell the story of Poles coming for a temporary stay in Africa in the middle of the Second World War? I mean, first of all, the, the first question I always get is, is how did they end up there? So, so that's that's always the first point I have to make, or or before going into the. Um, this so in, and that's a bit of a complicated story because they were first first deported to the Soviet Union, and then released later, and then transferred there. Um, but maybe I'm not going into detail there. I think what what's what strikes many people as well, or, or what I think is important, is, is 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 the one thing that if you put it into wider refugee history, is that it's. Like the common assumption today is like people are fleeing from Africa to Europe. That's like what what most people think about when when you say like Europe, Africa, and refugees. Then it's mostly about refugees from Africa to Europe. But I think that's one of the key takeaway stories. That okay, some time ago it was the other way around. So and again today with with the whole refugee movement from Ukraine, this is coming up again. So. Um, and then the other point I think worth making is, is that it's every refugee history is not every specific episode has a has a particular um, context. So it's not like any refugee moving from everywhere is always treated the same. But it really depends on where do people come from and yeah, how they are categorized. This is a one, perhaps one of the major, I think, points in your book, as I read it, that Poles were Europeans, clearly, but in some ways they were barely 
Europeans. Uh, you use a variety of different terms to describe their standing. And obviously, <laughs> we're talking above all about the perspective of colonial administrations, uh, broadly framed and, and financed and, and run from Britain, but not, ex- not exclusively. We're also talking about local African perspectives, that uh, they were poor whites, that they were liminal whites. I think one phrase that that really stayed in my memory uh, from the colonial administrators, peasants out of place. But these are actually very different conversations potentially, right? So if we're thinking about the Poles who uh, via the Soviet Union, via Iran, uh, ultimately ended up at least for a few years in these displaced person camps in Africa, uh, are we thinking of them as uh, points of racial contrast that had had the potential to shake things up for the colonial uh, power structure and 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 social structure. Are we thinking about them in as uh, in class terms or in economic terms relative? if we want to use a term that I really can't stand, civilizational terms uh, within European social structures and hierarchies? I guess in some sense, the answer is all of the above. But now that you've finished the book, and it's been a while since you published the book, I'm curious, what stays with you? Is it really a story that requires uh, being told through the lens of race? Is class helpful? What are the right frameworks uh, for thinking about Polish exiles in Africa? Mm. Yeah, I mean, as as you said, I, w- I would definitely say, okay, all of this is is important and it intersects. So I think on the base, basis there is an intersectional perspective because like these people were privileged by whiteness. Um, they were, on the other hand, they were marginalized. In the view of the British administrators, they were Eastern European. They were Eastern Europeans, and then they were peasants. So there's class coming in, um, but not all. Again, then, then if you if you really go into the sources and into, into the details, then you have a group where you have some former um, civil servants, highly educated, who could speak English, and then then they were quite quite underlining their own Europeanness and their civilizational, as you put the word, um, their, their, their class, uh, underlining their class there. Um, and then you have other Poles who could not play in this field because they were clearly from the rural periphery of the deepest east, eastern Poland. So, um, so I think all of this comes in there. At least what I did with my title, and I think also with my, um, because I'm mainly focusing on colonial history, so that's my where I come from. Um, that's why I think, and I think in colonial societies, racism is is the most important, basic uh, marker of difference. So, so that's why I think this is um, of utmost importance. But I think the other points are also important. So. Um, and also gender plays an important role that's, that these refugees were mainly women and children does play a role, definitely. So, yeah. Um, some of the, all of the, all of the above, but I would say, okay, maybe I would put race in the, in the center, or at least that's why I did. I mean, there are different ways to write the same story that would definitely put other emphasis here, but yeah. Yeah, the what there's I was put in mind I think about by about midway through the book of uh, a book from the field of U.S. immigration history, which I think I think you you reference in in, in your study Matthew Jacobson's whiteness of a different color, and I am wondering I mean obviously I I, I read that book some time ago and in, in a completely different context, but it's striking uh, whether we're talking about the poles in Africa or the poles as they were understood by European colonizers from other European countries. In this case, we're talking about Britain above all. Uh, Does it make sense to think in terms of race and racism within 
the category of whiteness. And in this sense, you know, I think I think it's that's that's an element of the story of Polish uh, expulsion and displacement and refugees from World War II that maybe hasn't quite been investigated quite so much um, compared to compared to how the British uh, or the French would saw their colonial populations overseas. Yeah, I mean, yeah, most definitely. I think there's there are differences, and it's, and it's always relational. If if you if the same uh, person from Eastern Poland would end up as uh, at the same time end up in in Britain as a refugee, it would would be very clear at the bottom of the social hierarchy. But in the colonies, it was different. So they were still at the bottom of the of the of the white society, but not at the white, bottom of society. Of colonial society as a whole, so I think it's always relational. But I think, yeah, as you said, it's it's really important to say that white white society is not a blo- is not a not a monolithic block. It's not homogeneous. That, that's that's what I learned from this story, and that what piqued my interest in the beginning. Also, that to say, okay, usually there there's this schematic image of of colonial society where you have the white powerful oppressor and then you have the black powerless oppressed and then 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 you and then a, a group of poor white refugees comes in there and then it was like okay so what's now with them they didn't even choose to go there they didn't want to go there so actually they were afraid to go there but then they were there in the end so so and i think it's important to distinguish between what a colonial discourse or yeah an idea of a colonial society that is that is that is important and powerful and and plays out but in the end the historical reality is quite messy so and also the this um that's what what and laura Stoller and other colonial history historians um uh, make an important point is that then the difference between white and black is not so clear cut and not always so clear but but there are a like these people on the borders sitting there who are somehow not quite white, as you said, yeah, Jacobson. So, well, in your story, the, uh, I mean, as you mentioned, gender is a structuring force in this story. And if we're talking mostly about Polish women and children, then these women were encountering uh, men and women, but above all men from a variety of different groups. And in that sense, like you said, the the binary collapses quite quickly because we're not just talking a black-white story here. We're talking about non-British Europeans. Italians come up a lot in your story. Uh, Likewise, uh, Indians, uh, Seychellois. Uh, So there is a mix uh, even, I think, making it complicated to disaggregate on the receiving end or the host end, so to speak. And then it strikes me also coming from Eastern Europe. And you, I think this is a very important conversation in the book, and it's one that I w- wanted to make sure to highlight for our audience. You also talk about how differences uh, back in, in Poland, uh, from Polish territory, between identities based on religion and nationality. Uh, anti-Semitism is the central example, but also Belarusians and Ukrainians who were um, expelled and, and ended up in as refugees in Africa. So uh, obviously, this is a lot of complexity, are there are there lessons for each of these cases that you would take away? Do you feel like, let's say, a scholar of Indians in Africa or a scholar of the Holocaust can read your book and and think about the way these different um, groups entangled? Mm. Um, yeah, that's a complex <laughs> complex question from many aspects. Let me just pick out maybe one. Let's. Anti-Semitism among the group. I was because I was also it was mainly a Christian Catholic group, but there were some Jewish Poles as well among them, and some some Orthodox uh, former Polish citizens who would identify as Ukrainians or Belarusians. So um, it's the majority were were Catholic Poles. Uh, 
but not all. So, um, and the question of anti-Semitism is especially at the time and in in the in the post-war period in Poland, it's it's a it's a contested uh, topic. Um, and and in my sources, what I came across was there were some reports of of um, that there was anti-Semitism among them, but then there's there's there was one story where the Jewish it, it's the Jewish um, congregation in Nairobi. They heard about there there are some uh, Jews among the Polish refugees. So then they sent actually um, um, Jewish congregation member from from South Africa who toured the camps to see okay how are they faring because they heard like okay maybe it's not good but then he went around and what he said like they are okay there they they are not complaining they and then then this Nairobi congregation helped with building a, a synagogue in 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 one of the northern Tanganyikan uh, refugee camps so it's quite a harmonic picture but on the other hand there are reports where where anti-semitism was there so i i really had the what i was writing there's no clear answer again so to say like okay these i guess they were anti-semites and they were people who just went along well so um so yeah but but there were many there were also other conflicts there were also also um people among the refugees who were pro-communist, very few, but they were there. So there were all the different um, social or political groupings that came to the colonies were still there. So especially in the larger camps where you speak, like like Tengiro, there were like over 4,000 people. It was like a massive town or small town of with all the Polish social life in there. So there were also all the conflicts coming up there. I think that this is, it, it's quite clearly told from a lot of different angles in your book. It strikes me, okay, there were choices made at various levels, especially by the Brits, but also by the colonial authorities on the ground, um, whether or not to let folks in. And Early in your book, you you describe several specific cases in which the colonial authorities are rejecting Jews, in the especially in the 1930s. And uh, on the other hand, once the let's say the group was welcomed as such, and obviously you know there's a piece of context you give I think very well in the book. This is a group that was attached to the Polish army that was serving alongside the Brits. Uh, after 1941. And in that sense, if Jews were fighting in the army, then their families were entitled to be part of, of this larger refugee group that was resettled at Britain's cost. So the question then, I mean, it strikes me that you get these these cases. Uh, Julian Zamenhof uh, comes up a couple times in your book and folks who don't know Polish history so well in the audience might not recognize the name Zamenhof. His uncle was the creator of the Esperanto language, but an assimilated Polish Jewish family. And he ended up, from what you said, doing quite well and ultimately moving on to the UK and living relatively comfortably in the UK after moving on from Africa. Uh, was he a rare success story? Or or is that was that a, a possible horizon line for uh, for this path? Mm-hmm. I think with Julian Zamenhof, he was... I, I think here, class clearly strikes everything else so because it was a, it was an upper class family highly educated he was a doctor so yeah that's so he was he was quite um respected by the british officials so i think that's in 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 this case so these are the rare cases where you have like these highly educated people of of a certain class who who then yeah can go on Anyway, so um, the other point you raised is, is is the connection to the British Army and the whole rationale. Why did they come there? Why were they accepted there? Um, yeah, they, they were 
connected to the British Army, and so there was there was on 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 the highest strategic level in Britain there was an interest to have these people somehow somewhere safe, and and well cared for. So in order to have the army fighting with with the Brits at a time in 1941, where, where the end of the war was not clear at all. So there was it was a, it was a critical point. Um, so that's yeah and, and as you said like the the, the former um rejection of of you jewish refugees from central europe they were also they were rejected by the british they, i mean they were rejected nearly everywhere so um that's all this sad story before the war before 1939 um and they were also rejected in in the colonies in in, in kenya and yeah there were many um but but there was no strategic interest in these people they were just like jewish people fleeing the war and okay then there was anti-semitism definitely and there was this fear okay these people come but they don't have a nationality anymore they are stateless because they left germany and germany nazis took away the their their citizenship so there was this strong uh urge against but this was all trumped by the now by this uh, rationale to okay we we need by the strategic interest and then the local governments in the colonies were just more or less okay they had to contribute to to save the empire so there was and that's also one of the reasons i think among others that especially uganda and tanganyika took in most of the refugees um because they hadn't contributed so much already like kenya where there were less in kenya there were it, it was important military hub and there was there were prisoners of war that also what you said earlier the the italians many of them were former prisoners of war so there were many men they were all catholics so it, it it's no coincidence that they met then so yeah yeah, it it it's uh it strikes me that, that of course there there are so many contrasts uh, in the story. So even though we're talking, I think the figure you gave was roughly eighty percent women and children for the group, or or even or more. Uh, but uh, you know, in that sense, Kenya, right? Because Ke- the the Nairobi, I, I, there was a, a a phrase that came up in your book that Nairobi as a capital of Polish Africa, but that was not the representative experience at all. There was a Polish refugee. Let's call it a public sphere, right? There were printed uh, newspapers and bulletins. A lot of them connected to religious life and Catholic chaplaincy. Uh, there was the actual Polish language administration, uh, initially at least, for until until its derecognition, uh, run on behalf of the Polish government in exile, the London-based government. Uh, but then most of these uh, refugees were poor women and children from the eastern Kresy of interwar Poland, whose homelands stopped being sovereign Polish territory in the course of the time that they were in Africa. And the dilemmas that they faced, I found really just really quite strikingly portrayed in your book. I don't know if you might just want to say a few words about the kinds of choices and also the way those choices changed in the course of the year's that especially uh, these poor women, whether they were widows with children or single or widows without children, um, faced. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think in the beginning or, or during wartime, everyone was expecting to go back. There was all the time the the there was the 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 idea that was held up, and the, as you said, these people were. Through the army, closely connected to the London exile government, and this government definitely thought, okay, after the war we go back. So we we are in exile, we go back. So just matter of time till we won. But then the end turned out. The end of the war turned out differently. So there was a communist uh, government installed there. So they were somehow stuck. And they 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 didn't really know where to go now, what to do now. Somehow they were they. Especially the government wanted to have these people together and keep them Polish and just wait till they come can come back. I mean, in the first post-war years, it was not 
not all was clear. It was all in flux still, or like as we see from today. Okay, we know it took until the eighties, nineties. So, but that was not the the time horizon back then. People thought like, okay, maybe it's it, maybe we will come back and everything will be fine. So, eventually, didn't know not, and so so the people in the refugee camps were waiting, and they were, I guess. They were mobilizing or people who already had some relatives somewhere tried to get to them, like very naturally, like refugees everywhere and every time. They tried to go there where they know already people and where it's safe. So especially if you look at the, the – there was a massive labor migration before to the from Poland to like from whole, all of Europe to, to North America. So many people knew someone there and then they tried to get there, have some uncle in America where they could go. Um, and then, then others, just with the pathing of time, I mean, they stayed there 1948, like two thirds of them were allowed to go to, to Britain. But some stayed even until 1950. So, so there was nearly five years they were sitting there and trying to get anywhere. So, and there were other some people also just wanted to stay where they were. They said like, okay, no, it's fine here. I can I can stay in Tanzania. It's 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 a nice place here. It's what I know and it's peace. Um, some had contact. Some some spoke local languages. Had contact with with people from around. So. But then they were not left. Then they were after the war. There were also discussions because then the UN refugee organizations that came in, the International Refugee Organization (IRO), they wanted to settle the people anywhere. So they also asked the local government, "Could you not just take them where they were, where they are?" Like asking the the colonial government in Uganda and Tanganyika. But then they said, "Like no, no, we don't want them here." So. We took them for the time of the war, but now they have to go. It's it's the responsibility of of the um, of the British government. So, yeah, I, I, it strikes me also that that the story of shifting responsibility as the political, the international political context changed, and obviously there's another piece of that puzzle, which is that all this time these are uh, refugees originating in their refugee experience from expulsion by the Soviet Union. But of course, the Soviet Union was the wartime ally of the Brits. So there's this sleight of hand playing itself out in terms of the public framing and the story that's also being told, I think, to the refugees. But after the war ended, there was this the striking difference I found. Uh, I got the sense you're fairly critical of the IRO. Uh, you can tell me in a second if if I if I read you right or not. But certainly, Polish women uh, in the African camps seemed really, really worried about the IRO's predecessor, uh, the UN Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, also known as UNRRA. Simply put, because they were afraid they'd be forced to go back to Poland, but not their Poland, uh, a Soviet-dominated Poland. And it seemed that there was that was a window where maybe it was a threat, a menace that was looming, and then somehow things got a little bit better. You said a moment ago that the IRO just wanted to put them somewhere, anywhere, not necessarily send them back home. But how... Uh, I mean, if you look, think from the standpoint of the actual fear experienced or the desires experienced by and the choices forced on as a consequence, the refugees, how real was that um, prospect of being forced to go to a communist version of their homeland? Mm. I mean, it's... it's a... <laughs> It's it's difficult to say how how like what could have played out differently, but I mean what and and it, there has some parallels to the um, European displaced persons uh, history. So uh, where UNRWA, like UN Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, was was mainly um, taking care of. Um, 
and they were involved in 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 forced repatriations to to the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union the whole Eastern Bloc was part of UNRWA as well. So that's also the main difference between UNRWA and IRO because IRO was the direct uh, um, successor of of UNRWA, but th but there um, the Eastern Bloc was not part of it anymore. So. Um, so I think this this fear was definitely there. I mean, they had been deported before. So, um, how and UNRWA was the, the main uh, um, the main means of UNRWA to to bring people. So, so oh, let me start differently. UNRWA was 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 set up to to take care of displaced persons, of refugees. We're stuck in in Europe mainly, but also in in these poles. Um, but the only thing that they could offer to settle them somewhere else was repatriation. So they were registering them. So they they came they came a mission from from UNRWA to to the East African camps, and they wanted to register them. But the people in the camps, especially informed by by the Polish elites and uh, Polish officials connected to the London government were strictly against any repatriation to communist Poland. Um, they were saying like, okay, don't don't sign anything because then they send you back. So there was a massive fear. So when, when this UNRWA official came to Tengeru in, in northern Tanganyika, was, people threatened him. They threw tomatoes. And so he was really, there was one observer who said like, okay, I, I was surprised you wasn't harmed there so it was really a tense situation where people were really afraid to be forcefully sent back so i think it was a, it was a very real fear if it could have happened i don't know i mean that's 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 guessing what how history could have developed so but i was it was definitely a very tangible feel of people who had been deported earlier had lived in labor labor camps and special settlement in, in the Soviet Union and has had suffered there, so they were definitely afraid. Although some voluntarily went back to Poland, so I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off well you give a number of examples that um of, of the kinds of choices that women especially faced I and mean, again keeping in mind the the demographics of the of the refugee population we're talking about uh partly to avoid repatriation but also maybe to avoid the uncertainty of other types of displacement uh where I mean, it seemed obviously this this it's hard to judge scale given the available source base, but it seemed that a, a, a substantial number of these female refugees uh, sought social ties that would keep them, uh, or at least would give them a specific way out. You talk about uh, marriages, marriages that sometimes turn out to be bigamous uh, or un, uh, to the to the profound detriment of the refugee women who entered into them. Uh, you talk also about um, the sort of fraught inter-ethnic and interracial questions attached to that. Keeping in mind, of course, I'm talking to our audience here, that the colonial governments didn't want, for the most part, these refugees to stay. So 
because of the fear, because of the uncertainty you just described, what kind of choices did uh, refugee women make, uh, especially once the war had ended? I mean, especially the, those who, who didn't have any any um, men in the army or close connections somewhere else. Um, yeah, they were they were quite. I think there's to to give at least some numbers that I found, but it's always sketchy. So there were like I think two hundred people who are Polish women who married, and I think it were mainly British residents in the colonies. So. Um, and I think there again to, to come back to an earlier question. Sorry, um, the the on the on the question of of where they were situated in the colonial society. I think it, when a woman then married a British resident, then there you you have this where gender and race come together or and nationality come together because then they then they become like like a British woman. So if they behave they should then that it's like okay then they change the name and then that's also where i tried to trace some people then i could find them anymore but because then their name changed and then i didn't know so um so but then they become part of this of this proper white british society um others try to yeah they 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 come up not very often because some of the it's just the sources are sketchy and they are scattered and but then there are some some stories like this one woman who who married an assumedly indian man in uganda and tried to stay there although she had the prospect of going to britain or even going to australia i think so but she said like no no i she then she changed to 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 the muslim face to to not be reliant on a Catholic priest because then the Catholic priest would maybe say, "No, I'm not. You you won't get married here." So, um, but then she 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 assumed the Muslim faith, and then she could marry, and then the Catholic authorities and the British authorities couldn't really say anything anymore. They didn't. They really didn't like that. That's what I from this one case because it came up in the files. But um, so there's a variety of of, of possible choices to be made i mean yeah although the largest majority went then first in uh, let me in just um, because most most went to meant to britain as you said already and that was connected first the people could go who had relatives in the army because the army the polish army was demobilized and then settled in britain and all of the polish refugees who had a direct relative in the army could go there and then in the in a second um round of of discussions and debates between the colonial colonial governments and the british government they said they they widened the scope okay there are other people who don't have a like don't have an uncle in the army they can still come here so um but all the time there was a fear that okay maybe we could not go there and then there were other people who were excluded when they had um, out of medical reasons or security reasons, people who had a, had a, um, they were like the really last people still in the camps were the ones who had maybe a criminal record or they had a, a, a had a disease or any other thing that made them ineligible from the British Home Office point of view. Yeah. Uh from what I remember from your book, a lot of those people ultimately ended up in the UK anyway, just because the the formerly colonial governments under decolonization just kind of threw them out. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that were that yeah, that were these last maybe I think ten or twenty people who were then still there until and in in Tanganyika until independence. So yeah. Well, mm -hmm. in terms of the scale, obviously, you know, we're, we're, we're talking, and I actually want to ask you a little bit more about sources in just a moment, but the example you gave of the Polish woman who converted to Islam in order to sidestep various restrictions, whether religious or cultural or uh, legal, in terms of what her choices would be, I 
gather that that was a fairly exceptional case. However, you talk about a broader phenomenon, both in terms of kind of violation of social and cultural norms and serious legal questions, especially from the standpoint of the colonial governments, and that's um, uh, interracial sex, sexuality, uh, just more generally in terms of the encounters between, let's say, African workers in and around the camps and female refugees. And then also the, the, the longer term question, which is marriage and family, interracial marriage and family. So I'm curious, uh, I know this maybe sort of bleeds over more into the African history side of the conversation, but to what extent did act, actually the, 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 the Polish female refugees, did their story impact uh, those norms and impact and challenge or complicate some of those uh, race mixing prejudices and uh, and uh, well you know forced changes. I think yeah I think especially in in, in southern Rhodesia that is Zimbabwe today there was very strong fear because there was a strong uh, large white settler community um, was very aware that it's that there, they were still a minority in power, and they they very much insisted on 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 the social dif- distancing between black and white. So, and then there was the case of some few of the Polish women who who had interracial sex with African men. And they were really concerned about it. It's like this. It went to the heart of 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 this distinction. That's also what I said. Like this, it's it's so important to, for a colonial society to work to keep up this distance there. And in the moment where people come in, and then this this boundary get blurred, so there was a really a threat to the stability of the at least perceived stability. In the end, I think it's. It doesn't shake the whole system, but it's but it, but this fear on the side of the white settlers was very pronounced, and also white women settlers, settler communities who were very like uh, in in white women welfare organizations in in uh, in southern Rhodesia, they were very much concerned about these young white women who have sex with anyone so so that's in their view i mean that's um i think in and and on the other side the 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 male authorities in the polish camps of the refugees i mean there were still some men um and they were usually in the position of power so they were the camp leaders the internal camp leaders they were also very concerned if if they heard about anyone who had contact because they wanted i mean that's 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 in all that that connects to 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 also to other group discourses where where the gendered role of, of women as as the keeper of of the community when they when they transgress the boundaries of this group um, be it a national group or a religious group or a racially defined group, um, then it's always a threat to the whole community. So, and it's very different if, if, if in term because interracial sexuality in colonies, if it involved white men and black women, it was not such a big dif- big issue. I mean, it was also an issue, but not not in the same amount. There's there's quite a difference um, involved. Uh, yeah. Quite a different effect, depending on who has intercourse with whom. So it, it strikes me that there's clearly a biopolitics in play here, and and of course, what it looks like will depend whom exactly we're discussing. But uh, the the question of the of the of uh, of sex, sexuality, and its implications for these race categories actually takes me back to one of the points with which we started, I would think, where you talk about the liminal whiteness of poles. And it strikes me maybe that I would be interested in teasing out a little bit more what you think the implications were longer term in the sense that you think that that had maybe the most 
I'll, I'll give a few different options, but you can feel free to choose none of them. I'm just, I'm, I, I want to hear what you think. Uh, the implications were for uh, the Polish refugees as they moved on to their ultimate destinations in terms of how they understood themselves. In other words, the experience of having been refugees in Africa and wrestled with these questions, uh, were there consequences for the colonial governments, right? I mean, obviously, this is the sort of last gasp before decolonization. So even if this isn't the, a massive scale operation, and it seemed like it was in Tanganyika and in Uganda, there was definitely resource investment, and it definitely mattered, uh, then the consequences of of um, of thinking about bio, African biopolitics mattered a lot, and then there's the question of of more generally the European refugee experience as World War II bled into the Cold War or shifted into the Cold War. Uh, obviously, they're very different stories, but I'm curious where you see this the questions that you raised at the beginning of how race entangles with exile and immigration and colonialism really emerge from the story you've told of this moment where there were Polish refugees in Eastern and Central Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you for this. Uh, <laughs> let me just have to stop myself with this. I think... I think um, the first point you raised for the refugees themselves, I think, at least as for yeah, I, I I think for everyone, anyone who has ever experienced being forcefully displaced or being a refugee, that that sticks for life and that increases the understanding for for other people who have who experience the same in another context. But I think that's that's something. Um, most definitely stuck with the, with the people, um, and there's these uh, there are memorial um, initiatives of of people of who whose parents or grandparents had been refugees and who are now going there and um, renovating the 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 cemeteries that are there, um, and they they are always very thankful and and. Yeah, try to reconnect with the people because it's like it's 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 also a story of of of, of hospitality by by all the critical viewing of it. It's it's yeah, um, and then the impact on the colonial societies. I think I'm, I'm definitely sure that this was not the last like the 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 punch that brought down colonial rule in Af- in Africa. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, I, I I think it 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 could have well been at least a small contribution to to let this image of of white superiority, white prestige, or how it was perceived like this this image that the colonizers always were very keen on 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 projecting or protecting and and producing, reproducing that this through segregation through. All kinds of rituals and and distancing and this at least got some cracks in this image and it was an image that was already I mean the whole Second World War contributed to this so where you have uh, soldiers from Africa fighting in in Europe and seeing like okay they are the same here um, or yeah so so um, and also the seen Britain severely weakened after the Second World War, actually, and France even more than it was in between an occupied country. So um, so I think it, it could have contributed something there, a small contribution maybe, and also for yeah, for, for this this image of, of white people are always rich and always powerful, and then you especially the people living around in this because they were these refugee camps were often really remote areas, and then suddenly you see like that, that was what I get from from interviews with people. They said like, okay, never seen before such a large group of so poor white people. So before that, people white people were always few and always powerful and rich. So and then there come one thousand people who are like look not very rich, not very healthy. 
especially in the beginning. Um, yeah. So I think they, they, they could could have made an impact on on this. It, it's hard to measure things like this, but this, uh, yeah. Thank you. I, I want to talk about sources for just a moment uh, as we move toward the end of the conversation. Obviously, you've gone to a lot of different types of source material. Uh, I was, I, I, I'm always happy to see extensive oral history. And I like the methodological reflection on it toward the end of the book also. Uh, partly, I guess it's a, it's a function of being aware that you want to include African voices and you know they're not documented as much. So uh, the way that I'm going to ask this question uh, intersects specifically with the the Eastern European studies audience I want to, I want to be sure to bring in here, which is how would you, um, what kind of sources do you think are really crucial in order to be able to incorporate this story into larger narratives. I bring this up partly because in Polish history, for example, in the field of Polish studies, there have been some very important books lately by uh, University of Wisconsin professor Catherine Ciancia about the uh, interwar Poland's attempts to civilize the Kresy or uh, by Piotr Puchalski. He just published uh, right, Poland in a Colonial World Order, uh, which is really about interwar Poland's colonial imaginary that was never fulfilled, and several other books. So there's a conversation in the field of Eastern European studies already, but it's not the same conversation that you're having. They overlap, I think, in really important ways. And I'd be curious what you think about the kinds of sources you read that could speak to a broader conversation about where, whether it's Poles or Eastern Europeans, but basically aside from the usual story of the Brits and the French, we can think more productively at the intersection of European and African history. Okay, what sources? Um, I mean, yeah, as you said, I, I, I rely on this book on, on quite a range of different sources. I found it different places. So, yeah, in, in the National Archives in, in, in uh, Kenya and in Tanzania. So, these are the colonial administration on the ground sources. Um, and then I've been to London, to the National Archives and to um, archives of the uh, former Polish exile government in London and to the UN organization's archives. That is, of the IRO, it's in Paris and of the UN, it's in New York. So, uh, of the UNRWA, it's in New York, although they closely follow up in each other, but they're they're different places. Um, so, but I think what I what I can bring into into the in the debate in Eastern European studies, what I think is a really important debate, and I, I read at least some parts of it and and engage with it in in one chapter of the book, where um, and they are mainly relying on, on 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 Polish sources, obviously. So, and that's very important, and it's 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 good that people do this. But I think that what what I, coming from African studies, uh, try to bring in here is also to say, okay, bringing in African perspectives on people of Polish people and British people in in Africa. Um, so I think that's what I can bring in here because. Especially, yeah, I mean, there are many, much more written sources from Poland about the Polish colonial attempts or Polish um, travelers to Africa or missionaries. So there's quite some written sources there. What I've tried to in my, try in my book is, is also to bring in the African perspectives there, at least as far as it is possible. As you said, like it's, it's uh, yeah, oral history always has its limitations and... Um, but at least, yeah, and and I think what's what's another really interesting Polish source that I used, um, but not everything that is there is is uh, Polish newspapers that were printed in 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 published in Kenya, um, published by the the refugees and the refugee administration, and so these give contemporary perspectives from an not only elite point of view, partly 
as well, but also from from common writer people from the um, camps who were sending in letters there. So I think that's a fascinating source in their archives in in London of all places. <laughs> um, so and I looked at a fraction of this because there were quite some newspapers and published every week over years. So yeah, I think that's. That brings in an interesting perspective there from Africa, but Polish perspective there. Well, the, there's a, a contemporary resonance to the question also in that, I mean, you've alluded to this a couple of times. It's hard for me as the host of a, of a podcast in the spring of 2022 talking with you, uh, an expert on migration and refugees, not to talk at least for a moment about Ukraine, and in particular because there are so many Ukrainians specifically in Poland today. But then again, as you had mentioned, uh, until the past month or so, it would have been more likely to think about Africa or the Middle East if we were thinking if we if we said the word refugees and if we were thinking about refugees moving toward Europe. So the reason why I bring this up is I'm curious and not to put you on the spot, but if you see or if you've thought if you've been thinking about in recent weeks any lessons that you saw in the administration of the refugee experience. And it struck me for example there was that point the strategic point that you that you identified why the the Brits wanted Polish refugees out of the way from Iran well because it was a strategic area of interest and I think about Eastern Poland and I think about that as well obviously that's just one element but I'm curious you you look at what's going on in Eastern Europe today uh, at the Russian invasion and its consequences what do you think about in terms of your your book, because I'm sure there there, there are a lot of thoughts that you have. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, actually, most of the people came from what is now Ukraine and Belarusia, so that's the very same. They came from what is now Lviv, then Lvov. So, um, so people came from the same places, even, and. Yeah, I think as an historian of, of re like someone in refugee history, it's not new that Europeans are fleeing. I mean, the whole UN system was set up to deal with the Europeans who were there displaced after the Second World War. So that's more than I think like, okay, yeah, we've been here before. So, And, and that's also what, what came up, what I realized there was an interest in, in this story coming up. Here and there, of people who say like, "Okay, now Europeans are fleeing." So, and 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 also of, of Africans who are saying like, "Okay, now they start the war there. Maybe they come back because they've been here before." And the people who who then re remember these stories. So, um, yeah, I think that that's like this one takeaway point. Okay, it can happen anywhere, and people always have to flee war. So, uh, as sad as it is, so. Um, The other thing is what, what I realized from from this is um, also that not all refugees are treated the same. So I mean that's that's the whole debate about it, the, the refugee reception of of Ukrainians because they are from the neighboring country and they are white and they are well, at least now they are considered white. They are not always considered white, but 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 there's this, this great hospitality which is wonderful. And and really great and and yeah. So there's nothing to say, nothing bad about it. It's just at the same time you you see other people from Syria fleeing a war that, like being from cities that were bombed by the same bombers. So actually, but they are not allowed in. They they are pushed back on the on the on the uh, on the borders. So um, and that's again that okay that's what happened before so it's it, it, it's an ideal that all refugees should be treated equally or all humans should be treated equally but it's in in fact it's always when there's when there's a common interest when there's a commonality felt there i mean it's also a point that that comes in there there's, there's this interest there's a common enemy so and it's very clear who's 
the aggressor here in the in the Ukraine. So it's clear that everyone in Europe, or at least everyone with some sense, says like, okay, we have to help these people because yeah. But it's different when it's wars where it's not so clear who is who is a bad guy. If you, if you take civil wars in I don't know in the Congo, or so then from a, from Europe it's not so clear. Okay, why should I help this one and not this one? Because it's it's complicated. I don't know about it. So, um, yeah. But I think that's yeah. This strategic interest is important, and also the the generally different treatment of refugees. That's that's uh, like. Sadly, it's all not very surprising. So that's sometimes what you learn from history. That's like, okay, we have been here before somehow. And in that sense, I think it's all the more important to read books like yours because we do see certain mistakes, hopefully, that can be avoided and likewise empathize uh, in other ways with the experience of of, of those you've written about. Uh, I have to bring our conversation to a close, but I wanted to ask you one last question, which is, I'm sure our audience would like to know what's next for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much, for first of all. Um, currently, I'm, I'm, as you said in the beginning, I'm working in a research project on the history of refugee camps, and that connects to this, this story, because these were people in refugee camps in the 40s and 50s in Africa. But I broaden this this scope a bit, and I'm working on on Greek refugees who'd been to the Belgian Congo. That's what I just recently wrote about, um, and I want to, or, or and, and I'm working on on un other camps of UNRWA and you know of UNRWA in in the Middle East where Yugoslav and Greek refugees came. So just to show, okay, this is. Um, it's not just the Polish group, group of Polish refugees, but there were others. And it was a crucial time where, where refugee camps evolved. And they did not only involve in post-war Europe, but they also involved in, evolved in during wartime in Africa. Um, so that's mainly what I'm working on. I'm also trying as part of this project to work on, on, on the further history of refugee hosting in, in Uganda, of refugees from Rwanda who came just eight years after the Poles left. Although this was stopped during the pandemic, so I still have to pick up on this project, but that's broadly what I'm working on now. So writing well, the a wonderful variety of different directions under the auspices of the same project. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, I wanted to remind everyone and recommend to everyone Johann Lingelbach's recent work on the edges of whiteness, Polish refugees in British colonial Africa during and after the Second World War. It's a great read and an important book. It came out in 2020 with Berghahn Books. And Dr. Johann Lingelbach has been my guest today on new books in Eastern European studies. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you so much, Pierre. It was really great conversation, and thank you for much, so much for these great questions and comments. And yeah, thank you so much. It was really nice. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.